sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit Epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a neurologist who practices at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah from the What's Health Got to Do with the team. Coming up, a special holiday treat. What is it about music? that makes us get up and move or feel or remember. Then, our pick for the best healthcare book from 2022. But first, regardless of whether you celebrate Christmas or not, one thing is for sure, you know exactly what time of year it is by simply listening. Carey, Elvis Presley, Nat King Cole, and the Carpenters. Miss Carey's song in particular 
is the undisputed champion of all Christmas songs by sales and downloads. Yet with all due respect to Miss Carrie's great Christmas bop, those nostalgic lump-in-your-throat sentimental songs are often the ones we have on repeat throughout December. But why are we drawn to stirring seasonal music that makes us both happy and sad? Turns out there are a few possible psychological explanations. Music has a strong tie to nostalgia, which is why hearing a song from the 90s can take someone directly back to elementary school, and why listening to certain Christmas songs can make people feel warm, fuzzy, and almost childlike. For that matter, what about music's ability to get you moving, pumped up, or motivated? As our gift to you, we're exploring music and its impact on health. Joining us today in studio is Dr. Stephen Gosden. He's instructor of music theory at the University of North Florida. Dr. Gosden, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. It is so good to have you and an early happy holidays to you as well. You too. Dr. Gosden, for those of us who may not have a music background, uh, and that would include me, what is music theory? I, I know that you are an instructor of that, but kind of just give us a general sense of it. So from kind of a very practical perspective for how most musicians are trained, music theory deals with kind of foundational knowledge and skills. So understanding the basic building blocks of music, things like scales, intervals, chords, and then applying that to really kind of important musical skills, things like being able to read a piece of music and learn it as efficiently and accurately as possible, or being able to hear a piece of music and then reproduce it by ear. And so that's what I spend a lot of my time doing in terms of teaching my first year, second year students. As an academic discipline, so something that has PhDs and academic conferences and periodic periodic periodicals sure uh the kind of main thing that music theorists do is try to understand how music is composed so a lot of it is western classical music so being able to take a symphony by mozart and actually explain here's how mozart would put all this together to create this thing that you're hearing which of course tells us a lot about what we're hearing when we listen to it but in the last 25, 30 years, a lot of music theorists have started to branch out into jazz, popular music, non-Western music, and also in the past several decades, the study of music perception and music cognition, which used to be a really kind of niche area within the field, has become a much bigger part of the discipline. Well, let me pick up on that, and I'm going to ask you a question that is going to betray my ignorance on the topic, uh, but I'm going to ask it anyway and hope for a brief answer on this. How do humans perceive music? So I've had to answer this question a number of times, and I'm going to try and boil it down to kind of three points. So the first one is that when we listen to music, a lot of the structure and organization that we hear is actually provided by us as listeners. And so just as a really simple example of that, if you're listening to a piece with a lot of really complex rhythms, a lot of things happening, and you start tapping your foot, that's really a representation of your brain taking this complex auditory signal and abstracting out from it a kind of uh, simple pattern that you then use to kind of structure what you're hearing. Uh, the second part of it is that a big part of our emotional response to music, because music really is so tied to our emotions and our expressive states, right. is the way that composers, songwriters, performers kind of manipulate our expectations of what's happening in the music. And just to kind of set the context for this, there's a great YouTube video of Bobby McFerrin. Okay. Where he's 
playing a melody using the pentatonic scale, a very common five-note scale. And he's going along, and no one's ever heard this melody before. I think he's just making it up as he goes along. And he gets to a point and stops. And everyone in the audience knows what the next note is supposed to be. It's a brand new melody, and yet everyone listening knows where it's supposed to go. And so, of course, if the melody does that, there's a kind of satisfaction because the, mel- the music did what you expected it to do. You kind of predicted sure. something correctly. If the performer or the composer does something unexpected, there's kind of a surprise and kind of an element of excitement. And so really kind of successful music has this incredible strategic balance between creating expectations and sometimes fulfilling them and then sometimes subverting them. And that's kind of the the magic bullet (laughs) that if you can figure out how to do that, that's how you're going to write one of those, you know, top 40 songs is if you can kind of get that incredible balance between meeting those expectations and then at just the right moment, not doing what's expected. I love how you have framed that because that's the first time I've actually, that makes sense to me perfectly. Thank you uh, in explaining that for me. Um, as someone who uh, I, I feel can very much be receptive to music. It always strikes me that if I'm listening to something, certain frequencies, as you talked about, will force you to tap your toes and some will make you want to just get up and dance and, and move around. What sound frequencies or rhythms are we responding to that, that makes you just like, you know, get out of your chair and move. So when you invited me to come on the show and to talk about, you know, things like related to that, you know, why do we want to get up and dance? I was kind of going back into you know, music perception articles, right. just kind of looking around in that. And a big part of it has to do with the, uh, going back to kind of what I was saying in terms of how we entrain a beat and a meter from the music and how that kind of lines up with the physical gestures that we make when we dance. So if you think about different dance moves, Some of them have very kind of small gestures, so you're kind of moving your hands around a little bit, so you can do that pretty quickly. Or if you're using a part of your body like your hands that's very kind of dexterous, you can kind of move quite quickly and uh, do a lot. If you're trying to swing your whole torso, that's a lot kind of slower. And so, um, actually going back to the the music perception, kind of just the the third thing I was gonna mention is embodiment, is that how we perceive music is very much tied to how we experience our body within the world. Um, There's actually, you know, there are fMRI studies that show the parts of your brain that light up when you're asked to think about a really physical activity like walking or jogging. There's a lot of overlap with the parts of your brain that light up when you're listening to music. Um, And so, you know, if you are, are listening to music and latching onto a beat that really kind of comfortably fits with the kind of pace at which you can move your hands around, that's going to make you want to kind of move your, you're going to kind of feel that in your hands. You're going to be able to almost not stop yourself or kind of tapping your foot. Again, kind of a small gesture. Um, But a lot of music that's really good at getting us at dancing is written in such a way that it's very easy for us to say, latch onto a beat somewhere around 120 beats per minute. Okay. Um, But also if you latch onto that, that beat, you're also going to latch on to a beat that's half that speed because of the, the periodicity. Sure. You're going to be, you know, one beat per second. And so then also, you know, one beat every two seconds. There's this, you know, really kind of nice hierarchical relationship. And so when you start to dance, you're often kind of latching onto these different levels and different moves that kind of line up with these periodicities. And kind of 100 to 120 beats is kind of the basic beat seems to be a really kind of sweet spot for getting us to to be able to move in a really comfortable way. I, I will also point out, and I did not know that answer, that is actually the beats that's used to train people to do CPR correctly. Yeah. And that's why they tell you to think of particular songs when you're uh, doing it. It's it's very much tied. That's why I say the idea of embodiment is that a lot of our response to music is tied to specific physical things that we do and you know there's hypotheses out there you know somewhat speculative that a big part of why we even have music in terms of just being human beings is that it's very closely tied to 
uh, our walking and just the rhythmic skills that we need to walk. And we kind of co-opted that into being able to experience music. Wow, this is amazing. I brought this up in our introduction. At this time of year, most popular music is literally dominated by songs from another era. Uh, I will listen personally to the Charlie Brown Christmas soundtrack. And every time I do, it literally transports me back to being a little kid in Northern Louisiana. And my question is, what is it about music that makes it evoke such powerful memories? So I think part of that has to do with the fact that music especially when you were talking about music without text or lyrics, lacks real kind of semantic specificity, but it has tremendous emotional resonance. So that's a big part of the equation is that we have such strong emotional reactions uh, without it being too specifically uh, associated with really kind of specific semantic meanings. But I think another big part of the equation has to do with just human brain development. Um, so there is actually kind of a technical term for what you're describing, uh, musically evoked autobiographical memories. Wow, okay. <laughs> um, and what has kind of been shown, and we kind of, I think, mostly know this, is that the music that we're especially exposed to from the age of about 10 to 30 is the music that tends to engender the biggest kind of emotional response for us throughout our lives. Wow. And so if you think about when you're growing up, obviously for your first few years of life, no one really has a lot of specific memories from you know, when they were one or two years old. Um, and kind of if you think when you were in kindergarten or maybe first grade, maybe you remember a few things, but it's not really that kind of detailed. But then you think about fifth or sixth grade, I don't know about you. I can kind of remember where I sat in the classroom. I can remember conversation. So this is where we really start to internalize a lot of memories that memories that stick with us for our whole life. And so it's probably not at all coincidental that it's also the music that we are getting exposed to when we're 10 years old, 12 years old, throughout those teenage years, as our brain is developing, that this is just the music that sticks with us throughout our lives. And it's why when you get in a car with someone and they put on their you know, playlist, the odds are it's going to be the music that they were listening <laughs> yes, to when yeah. they were in the kind of end of high school or early college, kind of when they're 18, 20 years old. And there's actually an interesting kind of cascade effect is that a lot of people will also have a really strong emotional response to the music of when their parents were about 20 years old, because of course they're in the car when they're a little kid what's playing on the radio. It's the music that their parents want to listen to. And so that's the music that they're kind of internalizing. And so, yeah, so we have this music that we have such a strong association with, especially from those years of our life where our brain is starting to really uh, form these, these memories that stick with us for the rest of our lives. What do you think it is about the holidays specifically that makes us gravitate to these older songs and music? Uh, I think part of it has to actually do with, how do I put that? Maybe kind of the reason why music is so much associated with religion. Uh, a lot of, I mean, music is very central to a lot sure. of religious observance. And if you think about what religion provides people, uh, very often, you know, it's a sense of meaning and purpose. Also, it's a sense of community. It's obvious uh, for a lot of people, that's their main source of community is their religion. And then also on top of that, uh, a sense of kind of structure and tradition to their lives. So I think wanting a sense of community and then also wanting some sense of tradition, wanting some sense of kind of structure to your life, these are kind of basic human needs. Some people, you know care a little bit less about traditions than others. And there are some people who, you know, it's really central for them. But I think that even if you're not an especially religious person, the fact that we have this particular time of year that is kind of built into our lives, has that kind of structure and is also kind of associated with these traditions, with often kind of family and other kind of sources of community, 
I think that's probably a big part of why we have this time of year that really people gravitate towards these things. So interesting. Well, you know, speaking of taste, because it's always about uh, choice and people's uh, particular preferences, is there a scientific reason why people prefer or dislike certain genres of music? So I think this might go a little bit back to what I was saying about uh, expectation and the way that we sort of internalize musical patterns from just being exposed to a lot of music. And so because of that, when we hear new music that we're not used to, we kind of perceive it a lot in, in relation to those patterns that we're familiar with. And I would think here, probably a big factor, if you think of the kind of big five personality traits, so um, conscientiousness, agreeableness, uh, openness, uh, uh, introvertedness, and neuroticism, openness, I think, is a really big factor here. So if you're the kind of person who scores very high on the openness personality trait, then if you're listening to music that is constantly meeting your expectation and is so kind of very familiar, you're probably going to not just get kind of bored by it. It's almost going to kind of aggravate you a little bit. You want, you kind of crave something different, something unfamiliar. And so... On the flip side, if you're someone who scores fairly low on the openness personality trait, if you're listening to music that's really unfamiliar, that doesn't kind of meet expectations that you have about how music should sound, you're going to find it kind of disagreeable. It's going to sound a little bit just like noise or static. Um, but then on top of that, you're going to get kind of bored as well because you're not going to be... Uh, as interested in kind of latching on to things and kind of staying with the music. So I, I think that's a big part of why people with different personalities kind of gravitate towards different music, especially in terms of, is it something really familiar or is it something a bit kind of novel and unique? I lived in Philadelphia for five or six years and before any game, they played that Rocky theme to get everyone pumped. I still can't get that out of my head, and I still follow the Eagles uh, and other Philadelphia sports teams as a result. What makes some songs or musical pieces more motivating than others? So I think there's the kind of rhythmic and metric acts, uh, aspect to it. So kind of what I was talking about earlier with dancing. But there's also... Uh, aspects of melody and harmony that really factor into this. Um, there's a book by a, a music cognition specialist, David Huron, who was published about 15 years ago called Sweet Anticipation, but it covers a lot of ground. And one of the things that David Huron and his uh, various uh, kind of co-researchers at Ohio State University have studied is qualia of music. So the kind of more subjective characteristics of music and how that relates to kind of more quantifiable structural characteristics of music. And so there's a great page on that book where they show different chord progressions. So if you have one chord and it goes to this other chord, where they asked a bunch of participants in a study to describe the kind of characteristics that, I, that they associate with, with those chord progressions. And there are certain chord progressions where people will say, motivating, uplifting, right. inspiring. Um, and they also will do this just with simple intervals. They'll do it with little melodic patterns, but they will actually find that there's a tremendous amount of kind of intersubjective agreement amongst participants about these kind of uh, qualitative descriptions of musical characteristics that, as I say, can be really quantified. You can kind of say, here's this chord, Here's this chord, so you can say what the, the root motion is, all the things that we talk about in music theory. But it's quite likely that when the Rocky theme was composed, no one was doing an elaborate psychological <laughs> experiment to kind of find out what's the chord progression that's going to be most exciting. But it's the kind of thing that composers and songwriters really kind of just pick up by being immersed in a musical culture. And as I say, it's really astonishing when you ask a bunch of people how much agreement there really is. And it, kind of, I think part of that is, is that when you do look at the more kind of structural features of the music, you can actually 
start to find reasons why that may, might be the case. That is fascinating. In our uh, brief moment that we have, uh, can can music make you healthier? Can it be therapeutic? So I think uh, part of that goes back to what I was saying about an emotional response. I think a lot of people think of music and health in terms of, say, relaxation. But even music that can have a fairly high energy level can really evoke positive emotions in us. Uh, and so I think anything that's kind of evoking positive emotions, that's going to help with, uh, with your health. Um, it's also a great community builder. Obviously, there's lots of people who just listen to music on their headphones by themselves. but if you can participate in a, you know, a community choir or a community concert band or something, it is also a great outlet for your kind of your uh, social uh, social life, which also is kind of tied to uh, to you know positive health outcomes. And then this is really not kind of a an area that I'm that well versed in, but there are tremendous things being done in terms of music therapy. So in terms of uh, people with autism, people who've had strokes, people with Alzheimer's and dementia. Sure. Uh, it really is kind of amazing the progress that is being made in terms of using music uh, to actually uh, help these people. Dr. Gosden, one last question. What recommendations do you have for our listeners to better appreciate music in our lives? So, I know for myself, I spend a lot of time listening to music kind of in the background while I'm doing other tasks. And when I actually stop and just listen to music without doing something else and just kind of make that my primary focus, as I was saying a moment ago, the kind of positive emotions, I really, that's when I find myself just in a way better mood. I feel just kind of happier with myself, just kind of better about going my, about my day. So I think if, you know, people can kind of take that time to actually listen to music and, and focus on it, there's a lot that you can get out of that. I want to thank you so much uh, for just sharing all of this with us. Uh, this has been terrific. Uh, thank you. And we, you can come on and join us anytime. Thanks a lot for having me. We've been talking to Dr. Stephen Gosden he is instructor of music theory at the University of North Florida. And Stephen, one last thing. Happy holidays to you. You too. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. Their large, velvety red leaves bring a splash of color into homes over the holidays. You've heard you have to be really careful, especially around children and pets. But the truth is, poinsettias aren't linked to any significant problems. One review of 23,000 cases in which people called the Poison Control Center found no deaths and no significant poisoning. Studies show a child of 50 pounds would have to eat 500 leaves or so to get really sick. Similarly, Mistletoe berries, while not really edible, aren't particularly toxic to people, according to the New York Times. Both plants also have a low toxicity for cats and dogs. The world is a big place, and sometimes it is hard to know if a seemingly small gesture like donating to this station makes a dent. But $5 buys more batteries for the recorder I'm using right now, and $10, that's enough gas to get a reporter at this station to their next news story. Hey, it's Sarah Gonzalez from NPR's Planet Money. Your help goes a long way. 
Give now. Please call 353-9528 or visit us at wjct.org radio. Calling all VPK through fifth grade educators and experts. WJCT is seeking creative, innovative breakout sessions for Teach on Saturday, February 25th, 2023. Proposals accepted until January 3rd. Visit wjct.org teach to apply. Welcome back. This is what's health got to do with it. And I'm Dr. Joe Servant. We now have a special stocking stuffer just for you. Our favorite healthcare book this year. I've read so many books over the course of my medical career. Yet every so often, a book comes along that should be a must read for all medical and nursing students, and for that matter, every health professional. Linda Villarosa is a journalism professor at the City University of New York and a contributing writer at New York Times Magazine, where she covers the intersection of race and health. She has served as an executive editor at Essence and a science editor at the New York Times. In 2018, her New York Times Magazine article on maternal and infant mortality among black mothers and babies in America spurred an awakening. And in her new book, Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and the Health of Our Nation, she lays bare the forces in American society and the healthcare system that cause black people to live sicker and die quicker than their white counterparts, a pattern we've seen most recently in the COVID-19 epidemic. The book was just named one of the top 10 books by the New York Times Book Review for 2022. And she joins us now from New York to discuss it. Linda, welcome to our show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be joining you. So good to have you here. Linda, to our listeners, what led you to write this book? I know you've, you write on, the, on these topics, but what led you to write this book? I think that I have accumulated such a huge pool of knowledge because I've been thinking about these topics, reporting on these topics, and covering these topics since the late 80s, all the way to today. And I started thinking, wow, I'm a person who actually knows a lot about, you know, racial health disparities. I've also, my own um, thinking has changed since my days when I was an editor at Essence Magazine to now. And I thought, I think this is a good time to put this into play, to put my thinking into play. I had to pause for um, a minute because of the pandemic. And I also had to, you know, shift a little bit because of the murder of George Floyd, which made everything even more dramatic and even more clear. But I think it was just this accumulation of knowledge that I wanted to put out into the world that made this urgent for me. Linda, there are so many important facts in this book. There's just too many to name, and that's why I recommend reading the book. But can you outline for us some of the most important facts that you think should our listeners really kind of take it to heart, if you will, in terms of what you've learned? Well, I think it's twofold. I think the first is that we have a problem in our country in general that we're the most wealthy country in the world. We spend more on health care than any other country, um, $12,000 per person per year. And our health care system is very advanced, yet our money spending on health care doesn't buy good health. Among the wealthy countries, we have the highest level of infant mortality, um, a growing level of maternal mortality. We're the only country where the number of women who birthing people who die or almost die related to pregnancy and childbirth is going up. And we also have the lowest life expectancy among the wealthy countries. So why does, if we spend so much, why isn't it translating into better health outcomes for us as a country? 
The second part is we have inequality in the country and in the healthcare system so that um, black people, our black infant mortality rate is almost twice as high as the white rate and higher than rates of other people of color. Um, maternal mortality is three to four times more likely for a black birthing person. And then as far as maternal mortality, um, education doesn't protect black mothers. So a black woman with a master's degree, a JD, an MD or a PhD is more likely to die or almost die related to pregnancy and childbirth than a white woman with an eighth grade education. And the gap is actually wider at the more educated end when most everything else would be equal except for race is different. So I think those are the numbers that stand out to me the most and seem the most um, confusing and maddening. Uh, with that, with reason, um, you know, you write in the book about your own uh, personal dealings with the healthcare system. Uh, could you share, you know, your own personal dealings, not the ones that you report, but your own, in terms of what it said to you that I need to do something, I need to write about this? I think that what happens when we talk about these issues is we look at the evidence. We're looking at what are the statistics, what are the studies. And at some point, people's personal experiences turn into a kind of evidence. And for me, that was in 1999. Uh, I was um, a science editor at the New York Times uh, newspaper. I was a I was pregnant with my second child, and my mother called. I was in New York. She was in Denver. And she said, you need to get on a plane and come to Den- home to Denver because your father is really ill. And he needs you. And she did. She she just she said, get really dressed up, put your business clothes on, and put your business card from the New York Times in your pocket, and I'll meet you at the airport. So I did all these things. I wasn't trying to get on a plane pregnant, but I realized that this was urgent. And then my mother met me, and she was really dressed up. And and I said, Mom, what is happening with Dad? And she said, Your dad is in the hospital. He's really ill, and they're treating him like. And she said the N word. And I thought, Oh my God. My father is trained as a back was trained as a bacteriologist, was always impeccably dressed, is kind of quiet, has a really good sense of humor, really kind person is what most people say about him. When I got to the hospital, he was in a dirty hospital gown. He was really upset and agitated. His hair was kind of a mess and he always had his hair really nice. And then he was restrained to the bed. And when I went up to him, I said, what's going on? And he just said, get me out of here. So what my mom is really savvy. So we went home. He was a, a veteran. We got his, and he was at a veteran's hospital. We got his medals from his military service, pictures of him before he was ill, including in his military uniform. We got, we told them he's trained as a bacteriologist. He's a scientist. If you explain things to him, if you're nice to him, if you're kind to him, if you don't yell at him, he will not be agitated. Just explain to him. He'll understand. And what was crazy is, you know, I thought, why did we have to do that? Why wasn't, weren't they just treating this man like a human being? And we ended up getting him transferred out of that hospital. But I always thought, why did we have to pull that respectability card and go all dressed up and show these him sure. and his past? Why weren't they treating this person who came to them for care in a more humane way? So very true. You know, in your book, you point out that you had an epiphany in that you realized that it's not personal health choices, rather racism at play in health outcomes, whether it's cancer or heart disease. How did you arrive at that realization, which is often told throughout most of our careers for those of us in medicine? Well, I think that it's the easiest thing to solve. It's the easiest problem. And certainly personal choices and taking good care of yourself is important. If you're pregnant, you should have good prenatal care and be paying attention to that. If you are, you know, you should eat right. You should exercise. We should do these things that make, um, you know, health better. However, it isn't only about personal choice. And most of the reasons for these racial health, this racial health gap isn't about people making personal choices that are positive because often even people that do like, you know, educated black mothers 
are making the right choices, but something else is going wrong. And I think one of the things that I noticed was this disconnect when you talk to people who are, you know, patients or regular people interacting with the healthcare system, and you were talking to healthcare providers, there's this different conversation. The healthcare providers are saying things would be different in America with our health outcomes if people just had more access to healthcare. Right. And then there's this other conversation where people are saying, well, we do have access to healthcare, but we are avoiding the system or we're afraid of the system because when we go into it, we're not treated well. So I think that's a huge disconnect. The other thing is, in you know, in my workings as a health editor and a health writer, it used to be this idea when you look at these health disparity, racial health disparities between mostly black and white patients, it was something about race is causing this. And I think the newer thinking about it, it's not about something wrong with the culture, something people are doing wrong or something wrong with black bodies. It's about racism. And that means ill treatment in our society and in the healthcare system itself, which is really the primary cause of this gap in um, health outcomes in America. You've already mentioned maternal mortality, and you have published extensively on Black maternal mortality, which has even led to a reckoning. Uh, Yet recently, uh, literally a few weeks ago, the March of Dimes report on preterm labor gave the U.S. a D-plus on its report card, especially when it comes to Black or Latina mothers. Uh, Why isn't more done on this issue? Why is this such a protracted problem? Well, I think that the issue is um, being addressed incorrectly, and part of it is because it's so hard to solve. So there have been real movements since probably 2018 in the healthcare system itself, which means um, both improving what happens during an obstetrical emergency, is to say sometimes you don't have all the tools on hand if there's an emergency C-section or if there's um, preeclampsia or some kind of hemorrhaging. And now there's been improvements at the hospital level. And secondly, in some places like the state of California, um, Louisiana, New York, you have seen um, anti-racism or anti-bias training embedded into the system, uh, the hospital system, so that even if there is something kind of sinister going on, it's being addressed on some level. But the other thing that's going on is even outside, you know, most people are going to, the problems during pregnancy and in health in general start before people enter the system. So it starts, you know, in communities and communities of color, especially black communities have been marred by centuries, decades and centuries of segregation, redlining, um, contract buying, the inability to buy a house, which is an, you know, asset of wealth. If you don't have wealth in a community, you don't have good health. So if your community isn't healthful or healthy, it's hard to have a healthy baby. It's hard to be healthy. It's hard to live a long life. The other thing, and there's a growing awareness of this issue of weathering or premature aging that comes as a result of ill treatment. It's been studied best in most carefully in um, black people, especially black women. And um, the coin comes from Arlene Geronimus, who is a professor at the University of Michigan, and it refers to the accelerated aging that comes if you are subject to repeated discrimination that your body is fighting against, going into fight or flight over and over again until your body literally ages more quickly. Um, This came to the fore, especially during COVID, when you saw Black Americans getting worse COVID outcomes 10 years earlier than white Americans. So if the worst health outcomes as a demographic happened to white folks between ages 70 and 80, it was 10 years earlier for the black demographic in America. Linda, I often lecture on the issue of uh, health inequities when it pertains to neurological issues. However, I find when I give a talk on this topic to a bunch of busy doctors that only have about 10 or 15 minutes to see a patient, they just look at me with this sense of helplessness. What advice or approach do you have for the rank and file doctors and nursing doing their best in a system that that's broken when it comes to this? What, what would be your suggestion? 
Well, I, I think I have two suggestions. Is One is harder and larger. It's that unless we admit that the system is broken, then we can't change it. So um, sort of working within a system that's broken is hard. And I have great empathy for healthcare providers who I know are, by and large, trying to do their best. But unless we look at this as a broken system, and, you know, I mean, it starts with getting universal um, access to healthcare right. for everyone, because a system based on capitalism and the ability to pay in itself isn't there. But then we also have to dive into, you know, what else is going on in the system. I think even if there were more time, you know, for each patient, which is something that we have to push for, so that physicians are able to ask real questions beyond just the, you know, nuts and bolts of what's happening with your body and ask what's happening in your life, that would help. I think the other thing is just, you know, just trying to be treat people as in the in the limited time as you would want to be treated or as you would want a family member to be treated. And much of them that does involve asking more questions and making the patients feel heard because I don't think any physician wants to believe the patients. I mean, I just was at an event where a woman came up to the mic and she said, I don't go to the doctor anymore because I am so afraid. I've been treated so badly. I would rather just take oh. my chances outside of the system. Um, and I don't think that people, you know, who are in the profession want to hear that. No, no, they but don't. But that's a saying that something is wrong. Uh, you know, there are so many pieces of uh, important information with regards to how this impacts uh, African-Americans and others. Uh, are you optimistic about real change occurring? I really am. I'm already um, a half glass, very full kind <laughs> of human being. Um, and, you know, I teach pre-med students and my pre-med students are taking my class. And they are really trying to learn about the history of race and medicine. They are trying to learn about what's going on in the system and, and look at places that are doing it better, look at, you know, sort of projects that are working or examples that are working. And they're saying, I want to do better. There are medical students, and I don't just mean future doctors, but also future nurses, future health policy leaders, future midwives that are really saying, I want to learn about this. I want to be a different kind of doctor. I want to change the system. And I find that that kind of energy among, you know, I was going to say younger folks, but some of the people that I've talked to are, you know, people who changed careers and are going back to medical school. I think there's a lot of energy in that area and there's a lot of reason for hope. Linda, in our uh, final moments, uh, what message do you hope our listeners take home from our discussion today, and more importantly, from your book, uh, what do you hope that they walk away with? I think that one message that is really, we need to change the system, and all of us who are involved in it or, and, and impacted by it need to say, this isn't working in America. There, it's too unequal. It's too unfair. It's too unjust. I think that's the primary message. The second message is what something my daughter said to me. She said, who's your book for? I said, oh, I think it really will speak to healthcare providers or people who are interested in healthcare. And she said, you should just um, take a little bit of a sidestep when you say that and remind people that it's also for anyone who has felt they've been treated unjustly in the system and feel that it's their fault. And I want to say, it, you know, I see you, I lift you, I've been through it myself. And, you know, it isn't our fault. It is absolutely not our fault that when something bad happens to us in the healthcare system or to our health, and, um, you know, I give a great deal of empathy and support and kind of like an, an I see you kind of feeling because it's bad. It makes you feel bad if you feel that you are ill, something's happened to you, but you're to blame, and that's just not right. Linda, I'm going to let that be our final word. I just want to thank you so much for uh, this book and for giving us your time today. Of course. Thank you. And thank you for all you do. I really appreciate it. Your, the work you're doing is also transformational. Thank you so much. We've been talking to Linda Villarosa. She is a journalism professor at the City University of New York, a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine, and she has a new book, Under the Skin, 
the hidden toll of racism on American lives and the health of our nation, which was just named one of the top 10 books by the New York Times Book Review for 2022. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckett. Heather Schatz is our senior producer. Brendan Rivers is our producer. Isabella Da Silva is our director. Next week's program is our New Year's Eve show with a special year in review and 2023 preview roundtable. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJZT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at American Brain Foundation and by the Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today.